Part One, Chapter Five, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The first retreat. April had passed. May had come and gone, and still the busy hum of war continued. Soldiering had ceased to be a novelty. Our volunteers were rapidly settling down to barracks life and were becoming contented. As our muscles had grown stronger, fatigue was felt less. Besides, drilling was not looked upon with such disfavor, inasmuch as the nearer approach to perfection in manual, the shorter became the drills. It was not long before Major Terrett had a battalion which even he or any other West Pointer might look upon with pride. Virginia was by this time practically out of the Union, for the Confederate flag, the rebel rag its enemies called it, waved over the public buildings. Jackson, the proprietor of the Marshall House, had published his own anti-Union sentiments by affixing over the roof of his hotel the insignia of rebellion. Against this he had been warned, as in case of an advance, his house being public was endangered, involving perhaps the safety and property of his guests as well as that of his own. To all such counsel he turned a deaf ear, quietly remarking that as the house was his own he would defend it with his life and that whosoever should attempt to lower that flag would do so at their peril. His threat was made good, for it was at this spot that the first blood was spilled. It was there that Ellsworth was shot, and Jackson also lost his life. The morning of the 23rd of May dawned upon our world. It was a bright sunny day, with one of those languid noons that rendered it an enjoyment just to live, move, and have our being. We had only two drills, both hurried through, and then the men lounged and slept, and the usually busy barracks were silent as the grave. Toward evening, life began to stir throughout the building. The drummer, rubbing his eyes, seized his sticks and beat the rataplan. The men reached out for their weapons, the officer girded his sword, and as in Tennyson's enchanted castle, the prince kissed the sleeping princess and woke the spell. At six o'clock, dress parade. There, in the softness of the evening, lay the beautiful Potomac, its waters gliding placidly by without a murmur, its surface undisturbed by a ripple, reflecting in its beauty the golden sheen of the setting sun and the gorgeous coloring of the sky. All nature seemed at rest, lasping into the deep serenity of night, but on the river floated an unsightly blur that marred the otherwise peaceful scene. It was the U.S. sloop of war Pawnee, riding lazily at anchor not a hundred yards from the wharf, she had arrived that morning and taken position, amid much speculation and wonderment of the good people of the place. There she lay, dark and forbidding, revealing the grim muzzles of her twenty-four-pounders. Suddenly, in the twilight, a gun was run out and immediately a long bright flash poured out of the muzzle, succeeded by a thundering report that rattled windows in their casements and startled the town. An interval of a few seconds, and the signal was answered from the navy yard at Washington, then the silence of night came on, and nothing further startled or jarred the gathering shadows. Nine o'clock, the tattoo beat, and the barracks were in Cimmerian darkness. Sleep weighed down our eyelids, and only the guard's solemn tramp broke the quiet. Midnight came, and the cry of the sentry was, All's well. The town clock chimed one, and still the city slept on. The streets, deserted by every living thing save perhaps some houseless dog, had sunk into a quiet as unbroken as that of the wilderness. Three o'clock, and yet no sound other than the measured strokes of the old town clock, albeit the faint light of coming day had begun to streak the east. Four o'clock, 
the quick sharp beat of a horse's hoofs on the stones reverberated upon the air and its rider at full gallop dashed up to the barracks it was major terrett's courier halt said the guard who comes there a friend give the countersign oh damn the countersign i come from major terrett and must see captain mare at once the captain was awake in an instant the commandant's dispatch was short wake the drummer and beat the long roll ordered the captain then came the rattling of the drum as though by instinct the men were in line before they were fairly awake in hurried tones the captain told them that the town would shortly be in possession of yankee infantry who were even then in the suburbs and he added i will give you ten minutes to get ready not one second more pack your knapsacks and have your accoutrements and be prepared to march when the order is given whoever is not ready will be left behind instantly everything was in confusion at last a dim glare was thrown over the scene and rendered it visible as well as laughable the men all unused to night alarms were panic-stricken and huddled on the first clothes they could get their hands on rammed everything in their knapsacks taking what they would not want and of course leaving what they did complaining bitterly of the very short time allowed the idea of time is purely relative ten minutes with a dentist hacking away at a nerve is an age ten minutes with one sweetheart on a moonlight night is simply nothing but those ten minutes there they were gone the drum beat the clear tones of captain mare's voice rang out the order fall in steady men the sergeants distributed sixty rounds of cartridges to each man a proceeding which sent the blood away from many a cheek especially as the march of the enemy's troops began to be distinctly heard while at intervals the sound of cheering that came to our ears showed how rapidly the danger was approaching nearer and yet nearer we had often prayed to meet the enemy but not so early in the morning and certainly not with so little ceremony we had thought too of marching out of town but it was to have been in broad day with banners flying and bayonets gleaming the band playing dixie while the entire population hanging around would wipe their weeping but admiring eyes this hurrying away like a thief in the night had not much glory attached but yet it was with infinite relief that we heard the next order by the right flank by the left march and not a minute too soon for as we marched out of the town the enemy's column by a parallel street marched in a collision seemed imminent but the discipline of the company was here evinced we marched as regularly as when on parade one square two squares were passed when just in front was seen a body of infantry crossing a square farther on and at right angles to us going at double quick it looked as if our first battle had really begun then came the order company shoulder arms by the right into line forward march right shoulder shift arms double quick march and then we started to break and force our way out a square farther on and in the uncertain light of dawning day we could see troops standing a hundred yards distant but whether friend or foe could not be distinguished the company was halted and ordered to load the line was dressed and extending from sidewalk to sidewalk we continued on our way expecting a volley to be poured into us every minute just at the final moment we discovered that we were mistaking friends for foes it was company h who in their turn were laboring under the same delusion it is needless to say that no blood was spilt that morning in a brief space other companies came up keeping on in a solid column to the railroad all the infantry escaped but the cavalry company of captain ball was captured to a man the battalion was not halted until some three miles outside of town 
where we boarded a long train of cattle cars. The whistle sounded slowly at first, then faster, and the cars started. The crowd broke into that favorite song, We'll be gay and happy still. Middle-aged and elderly citizens who heard the alarm rushed out and joined the singing throng. Had the advance of the enemy been delayed but a few hours, not an Alexandrian, from a budding youth to palsied age, would have remained. A moralist would have found much food for thought in that miscellaneous party. There were men of ripe wisdom and wide experience, long-headed, cautious businessmen who were leaving their warehouses full of garnered goods, shopkeepers deserting their stores which a lifetime of frugality had built, planters abandoning their estates, and farmers with their granaries full, their barns stuffed, stables filled with blooded stock, and cattle grazing on the hills, and the simple negro slaves without a guide, and worse than all, men left their families all unprotected. It was passing strange. It is a curious fact that when a community of men labor under an intense mental strain for a length of time, their reasoning faculties become numbed. These people, and Alexandria was but typical of the entire South, had talked of war, dreamed of war, and had simply become war-mad. No domestic or business thoughts could find lodgment in their brain. The cold, calm-eyed goddess of reason had fled from the land, and wild-eyed shrieking ate reigned supreme. There was no retrospection, no future, only the thrilling present. In those perilous times, men's very natures were changed. When the stirring notes of Dixie, or Maryland, my Maryland, filled their ears, the softer strains of Home Sweet Home found no responsive chord. It was madness, it is true, but yet a transcendent madness, in which greed, envy, and malice had no part. And so these elderly fellows, deacons, vestrymen, and communicants, sat in the crowded flats, and as their homes, their families, and their fortunes were left behind, they joined in the jubilant chorus, We'll be gay and happy still. Take, for instance, the case of my own family. We lived on a splendid estate of 650 acres, lying on the Potomac, between Alexandria and Washington. Footnote. Between Washington and Alexandria, on the banks of the Potomac, is one of the oldest and finest estates in Virginia. It was the family seat of the Alexanders and Hunters, and has been in the family for nearly three centuries. The family is descended from the powerful clan of MacDonald of Scotland, from Alexander, son of John, Lord of the Isles, by Lady Margaret, his wife, who was the daughter of Robert, the second king of Scotland. John the Fourth, son of the Earl of Stirling, emigrated to Virginia in 1659, and had all the land from Georgetown to Hunting Creek by letters patent. When he died in 1677, his will bequeathed to his son John all the land from Four Mile Run to Hunting Creek, so that the historic home referred to became the home of the Alexanders. The mansion is still standing, and is most solidly constructed. The beams and rafters are of solid oak, two feet in diameter, and strong enough, as was proven, to bear the weight of two centuries. Descendant after descendant inherited the estate, until it, together with Arlington, fell into the hands of Gerard Alexander. Gerard sold Abington to General George Washington, who bought it for his stepson, John Park Custis. Here he and his wife lived several years, and his four children were born at this home, except G. W. Park Custis, who was born at Mount Airy. Abington passed away from the Custis family. It had been paid for in continental money by General Washington, and the heirs of Gerard Alexander brought suit to recover the money. After many years of tedious litigation, 
the sale was set aside and abingdon passed once more to the alexanders it was sold to one of the wises who kept it for some time and resold it to general alexander hunter a member of the original family general hunter was a famous soldier in the british invasion when general ross burned the capital in washington and he was marshal of the district for twenty years he willed abingdon to his nephew alexander hunter but before his majority abingdon was confiscated in eighteen sixty four while he was in the black horse cavalry in the confederate army lockwood's historic homes of washington page two o two i doubt whether in the whole southland there existed a finer country seat the house was built solidly as if to defy time itself with its beautiful trees fine orchards its terraced lawns gravelled walks leading to the river a quarter of a mile away the spacious barns the stables with fine horses for which my father a retired naval officer had a special fondness the servants quarters where dwelt the old family retainers and their offspring some fifty or more in addition to this stately place my father owned a second plantation called brookdale but a few miles away and adjoining arlington general lee's estate it was the custom of our family to spend the summer months at brookdale so as to escape the ague and fever that attacked every one who lived on the banks of the potomac in april my father removed his family to the city of alexandria and abandoned those two places with all of their goods chattels servants stock in fact everything except the clothes we wore not even employing a caretaker for overseer we had none the land was there after the war but that was all in the national capital my father owned a fine mansion of forty rooms and spacious grounds corner of c and third streets northwest besides a dozen or so of smaller houses and many lots mr lincoln sent him word that he would not be called upon to draw his sword against his native state and asked him to let his name remain on the retired list pledging him that all of his property would be strictly guarded my father refused the president's courteous request and infected by the rabid contagion that swept through the south lost all reason and he left all his great business interests to go to the dogs without one precaution whereby he might protect his rights End of part one chapter five